Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Fakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about upper GI bleeding. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So Sajin, kick us off with your great case you had brought into you the other day. Yeah, I wanted to highlight this case because as we'll talk about, some of these things can start off as fairly benign um, and become very serious very quickly. So I recently had a case brought in by EMS of a 62-year-old who had just complaints of nausea and vomiting and had actually come into the high acuity zone because of an initial blood pressure of 80 systolic. Um, But by the time the patient had arrived to the emergency department, the pre-hospital providers had done a great job, given a little bit of IV fluid, and his blood pressure was 110. So we all took a step back and thought that maybe this case wasn't going to be as serious. The medics started giving us report and moving the patient over onto the hospital gurney when all of a sudden he became very pale and diaphoretic and he actually projectile vomited bright red blood so much that it actually hit the wall across from the gurney that he was sitting in. Unfortunately, within seconds, we were checking for a pulse and we had lost pulses. We had started resuscitation and CPR and I looked into the airway and all there was is just bright red blood. And we used two suction catheters at the same time to try and remove all this blood, but it was just continuously pouring blood and it was impossible to even see vocal cords. And eventually we had to use uh, a small bougie and aim for the air bubbles to guide us into the airway, but really just highlights how significant this bleeding can be. We later learned that the patient had a history of liver cirrhosis, and we suspect that this was variceal bleeding. We'll talk about what that means and what that is. But highlighted in my mind, the initial approach we had of thinking this patient may have been okay, given their relatively normal vitals and a benign history of nausea and vomiting, into what turned out to be a very serious case. I think it also highlights how much bleeding can go on that you don't see. You know, we're used to traumatic bleeding where it's on the ground or it's on the floor. And now it's like it's all internal. Probably that guy had bled leaders into his gut and then he's going to projectile vomit them. That's an awful case. I can't imagine how scary that must have been to see all that projectile blood vomit. Yes, terrifying. So Patio, kick us off with epidemiology. How often does this happen? Sure. Um, Well, upper GI bleeding refers to any bleeding that occurs from the esophagus down to the duodenal jejunal junction before the ligament of trites. And so this bleeding can be in the esophagus, stomach, duodenum, and can be caused by a large number of pathologies. Now, annually, the incidence of hospitalization for 
Acute upper GI bleeding in the U.S. is more common than lower GI bleeding. And um, more commonly, it's caused by erosion of the mucosa, but there's also some vascular abnormalities or infections that can lead to it. So the most common causes of upper GI bleeding, a quarter of episodes, are due to peptic ulcers. And gastric ulcers, that's ulcers in the stomach, are more common than duodenal ulcers, which are ulcers in the small intestine. The next most common cause is an erosive gastritis or esophagitis. After that, we have esophageal varices. And esophageal varices, although it's only 12% of all the upper GI bleeding, I would say it's almost 100% of the ones that freak us out um, because these have a very high mortality rate of 15 to 20%. So the case Sajan described of just that projectile blood vomiting, that's an esophageal varices um, that's burst, basically. And just for people listening, remember varices are just abnormal vasculature in the esophagus, usually caused to like a low protein state, like in a cirrhotic, and those blood vessels are protruding into the esophagus, kind of like a varicose vein on your leg, but it's in your esophagus. You know, a food comes by, nicks it, and it starts bleeding. Now, some other causes of upper GI bleeding are angiodysplasias, um, and that's, again, vascular malformations. Then we have Mallory-Weiss syndrome, which is when somebody has been vomiting so much that now they have some small tears in their esophagus. Um, You can have masses due to polyps or cancers. And then in about 10 to 15% of patients, no lesion is actually ever identified causing that GI bleed. Now, really uncommon but severe causes include aortoenteric fistulas. So this is when the aorta makes a communicating tract with your gut, which is as terrifying as it sounds. And then also, you could just have iatrogenic bleeding after endoscopy. So a patient might say, oh, I just had an endoscopy today, and now they have bleeding, and that could actually be from the tools used for that procedure. Now, no matter what the etiology is of the bleed, morbidity and mortality is high in these patients. There's a lot of different scoring systems that have been developed to assess the risk of requiring intervention and death. Um, And really, with a lot of these patients, you have to kind of put together the full picture um, to see if they're really at a high risk or not. So for example, a male with a blood pressure of 100 to 110, but a heart rate greater than 100, who has some melena and no chronic medical problems, has up to a 35% chance of requiring intervention in the hospital during endoscopy with either injection of medication or banding of varices, and up to a 5% mortality. So for example, in this patient, really all you have is a little bit of a soft blood pressure, some tachycardia, and some melena, and already you're like, oh, well, you put together those three pieces of the puzzle, and this is this becomes kind of a scarier case. So, you know, we do see these patients all the time, but we can't get complacent because it does carry with it significant mortality. Sajin, kick us off with a pathophys. So the most common cause, as Patil mentioned earlier, of upper GI bleeding is peptic ulcer disease. There are five main risk factors and causes. One is H. pylori infection. Two is NSAID use, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Three is therapeutic anticoagulation. Four is stress. And five is excess gastric acid. So starting with H. pylori, it's actually the most common chronic bacterial infection in humans. About 10% 
of the population between 18 and 30 years of age have H. pylori, and up to 50% in those older than age 60. And H. pylori causes chronic inflammation that upsets gastric secretory physiology to varying degrees and basically leads to chronic inflammation and gastritis. Most people, they remain asymptomatic and doesn't progress to anything serious. But in some cases, the altered gastric secretion coupled with that tissue injury and inflammation leads to peptic ulcer disease. And about one half of patients with gastroduodenal ulcers have evidence of H. pylori infection. It's a really unique pathogen. It's adapted to live in the very acidic environment of the stomach, and it just renders the underlying mucosa more vulnerable to acid damage by disrupting the mucus layer, liberating enzymes and toxins, and adhering to the gastric epithelium. Additionally, when left untreated, H. pylori-infected individuals have a six-fold increase in the chance of developing gastric cancer. So this is very common, but not benign. The next risk factor is excessive use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and therapeutic anticoagulation. They work similarly in that the NSAIDs such as ibuprofen and naproxen inhibit COX enzymes. Inhibition of COX-1 enzyme leads to reduction of prostaglandin secretion and reduces the natural protective effects in the gastric mucosa. Aspirin not only inhibits COX enzymes, but also inhibits platelet activity, leading to increased chances of bleeding. And the direct oral anticoagulants like Pradaxa or Eliquis or Xarelto also increase your risk of bleeding. And up to 50% of spontaneous bleeds in patients on these medications occur in the GI tract. So I know there's a lot of big words and all that, but just remember our stomach is made up of tissue and it has this protective layer in it. And the prostaglandins are secreted to protect that protective layer. So you take medicines like the NSAIDs or the anticoagulation, it, it basically infringes on that protective layer so this bacteria can get in and then ruin the mucosa. Let's jump to the next one of um, liver cirrhosis. So liver cirrhosis or chronic damage to the liver can result in many different complications and interestingly, you know, the liver is a detoxifying filter for the blood, but it's also really important in creating clotting factors, stimulating platelet production, and managing the flow of venous blood from the body back to the heart. So if the liver is damaged, this leads to a lot of risk of uncontrollable GI bleeding, um, because first off, you have loss of or abnormally functioning clotting factors, you have low platelets, and then you have portal hypertension. So this is when blood can't pass through the liver effectively and then starts to back up. And then the backup leads to large engorged high pressure veins around the stomach called gastric varices, as well as engorged high pressure veins around the esophagus called esophageal varices. Normally, when we think of veins bleeding, we think of a slow ooze. We don't think of it as bad as like arterial bleeding where it's like spurting out. But these varices are under high pressure and they can actually spontaneously rupture, causing severe life-threatening bleeding, leading to rapid exsanguination. So these are really scary patients, um, and this is exactly the patient that Sajan described of the person that seems okay, and then all of a sudden they start vomiting blood um, and losing pulses. That's a variceal bleed until proven otherwise. So really a cirrhotic patient, it's just like a 
perfect storm. It's a recipe for disaster because not only do they have things that are going to make them bleed, but then the things their body needs to make them stop bleeding, like platelets and clotting factors, aren't there or don't work. The other major risk factors for developing GI bleeding are physiologic stress. Physiologic stress often leads to increased cortisol levels, and increased cortisol levels also act to inhibit the protective layer of the gastric mucosa. And then some people also just excrete excess gastric acid, which can overwhelm the body's natural defense mechanism. Let's jump to the assessment of these upper GI bleed patients. You know, they can present in a, a myriad of ways, and they can be caused from so many different etiologies, it's really hard um, to narrow it down. So, of course, you're going to start with your ABCs. You know, are they protecting their airway? So, Sajin's case, you know, in the beginning, he was protecting his airway. He was talking and fine, and then all of a sudden, he was not fine, right, and vomiting that bright red blood. You know, could they have aspirated the emesis and now have coarse breath sounds and hypoxia? Is the patient perfusing well? Should we want to check their cap refill and skin signs and blood pressure? So if not requiring immediate life-threatening intervention, you're going to assess the risk and possible etiologies for their presentation. So is the patient jaundice? Do they have a history of liver failure? These patients are at super high risk for esophageal varices and high mortality with these variceal bleeding. Does the patient have significant NSAID use? Do they take Motrin four times a day for their migraines most weeks out of the month? Is the patient on a therapeutic anticoagulant or the Coumadin for their AFib? Evaluate the patient for dizziness, lightheadedness, syncope, altered mental status, and generalized weakness, as there may be signs of hypovolemia. Evaluate the patient for chest pain and dyspnea or shortness of breath. These may be signs of myocardial ischemia in the setting of a GI bleed. So in the management of these patients, um, first we want to address any of our ABC, airway breathing circulation interventions that need to be done immediately. So we would like to get two large bore IVs and start IV fluids, Consider blood transfusion if you have capability in the field. Some EMS systems, such as our aeromedical system here, air methods, do carry blood, as we discussed in episode 59, blood transfusions in aeromedicine. There's been multiple studies done looking at different things used to, for GI bleed, but there was one trial, the HALTIT trial, looking at tranexamic acid, or TXA. This was a multicenter trial looking at over 12,000 patients. And in the end, giving TXA was not recommended for acute GI bleed because there was no benefit on five-day mortality due to bleeding. And it actually showed harm with increase in venous thromboembolic events. So right now, there isn't any specific medication that we recommend in the pre-hospital setting to actually stop bleeding. Now, in the hospital, if somebody is on anticoagulant medications, we will consider reversal with platelets, uh, fresh frozen plasma, or a prothrombin complex concentrate, which is basically giving back all of the clotting factors that you're missing when you are on um, anticoagulant medications. Now, in the hospital setting, we do give gastric acid suppressants such as proton pump inhibitors or PPIs to decrease mucosal injury, but this actually has not been shown to improve uh, morbidity or or mortality in these cases. We can attempt to put direct pressure on the bleeding region, whether in the esophagus or in the stomach, by using a device with balloons that inflate to tamponade bleeding. These are called Minnesota Blakemore-Linton tubes, and these are really used as like the end of the line thing. Like you you have a bleeding patient, you have nothing left to do. They're too unstable to actually get that endoscopy procedure. And this may be a temporizing measure. 
Just remember with all bleeding, you want to apply pressure. And this is one of the internal bleeding sources where you can't get pressure on your gut, right? You can't get pressure on your esophagus. So these tubes are fancy tubes that go down your esophagus and your stomach that you blow up to try to put internal pressure on these bleeding veins. Exactly. And then in the hospital setting, we do call our GI or gastroenterology colleagues for consultation so that um, they can take the patients to endoscopy where they can actually administer medications like epinephrine directly at the bleeding site or place bands or clips um, to stop the bleeding. Let's talk about protocols. You know, some systems actually do have a GI bleeding protocol. Here at SEMSA, the Central California EMS Agency, we actually don't have a specific protocol that addresses GI bleeding. Some um, EMS providers will be on the nausea, vomiting, or the non-traumatic shock protocol. But usually you're on no protocol and the EMS team just focus on supportive care for the airway and the treatment of shock if it arises. Just in case you have shock, um, Sajan, why don't you take us through the non-traumatic shock protocol? First, as always, we start with our ABCs, focusing on the airway, protecting with appropriate positioning, basic airway maneuvers, a pharyngeal airway if necessary, or an advanced airway if indicated, and assisting respirations as needed. And of course, having suction on standby, as I mentioned in my case, is very helpful. High flow oxygen is next. Place the patient on the monitor and treat any rhythm if appropriate. And we're going to, for these patients, minimize delay on scene. And we're going to transport rapidly and provide therapy en route and continue to reassess the vital signs. Part of that therapy en route is obtaining IV access, two IVs if possible. And we do have criteria for IV fluids. If the blood pressure is less than 80, then they can be run wide open. Or you can do a fluid challenge if the blood pressure is between 80 to 100. And the last step in the protocol is a 12-lead ECG in presumed cardiogenic shock. And then, of course, contacting the hospital as appropriate. There is also a base hospital order uh, for an epinephrine drip if profound shock persists. And you do this by injecting one milligram of the 1 in 10,000 concentration epinephrine in 250 milliliters of normal saline and titrate the IV with a pediatric drip to blood pressure of about 100 systolic. That comes out to about a rate of 0.5 to 1.5 milliliters per minute. So let's kind of go through our summary take-home points for GI bleeding. Sajin. So a small amount of vomited blood may actually represent a large amount of gastric bleeding. Remember, all this bleeding is internal. We don't really know how bad it is until, unfortunately, sometimes it's too late. Patio. Take any abnormal vital signs seriously, even if it's just a little tachycardia or a little bit of hypotension, that's going to be a big deal in these patients. And for my take-home point, I kind of have two. One is always look at their past medical history. If they say they're cirrhotic or had a previous GI bleed, really get your heckles up and really start to worry about them. And also treat shock, right? If they're hypotensive, of course, just know that's kind of an ominous sign. That would be a stat transport. So thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at 
podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.